Hi there, it's Bean. Welcome to an all new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. It's a very special Friday edition of this podcast. Instead of our usual Weedness Day drops, because I wanted to get this one out a few days before the upcoming high holiday. That's right! 710 is nigh upon us, people! The day set aside to celebrate cannabis concentrates. Why? Because July 10th is 710, just like April 20th is 420, and 710 upside down spells oil. It's really as simple as that, and just like 420, 710 gets bigger and more significant every year as a time to celebrate this plant we all love in its most essential and refined form. Now, if you want to know more about the earliest spiritual uses of hashish dating back literally thousands of years, check out our recent episode titled Cannabis in the Ancient World. To trace the spread of traditional hashish along the spice roots and silk roads of yore, scroll back just a few episodes further and tune in to weed history in the Middle East. For the incredible story of the birth of contemporary hash, check out our 710 special from last year. It's called Meet the Psychedelic Surfers Who Invented Dabs all about the legendary brotherhood of eternal love and how they created the earliest known BHO. Or go back another year to our first annual 710 special celebrating Hash's high holiday with an IRL sesh. You'll hear me get a crash course in cutting-edge cannabis concentrates on that one. So if you're a little bit mystified by all the talk about oils, waxes, shatters, crumbles, resins and rosins, I'm right there with you. And spoiler alert, it's by far the highest I've ever gotten on this podcast before or since. But let's start right here and right now by celebrating 7-10-2023 with a true wizard of the culture, Roger Volodarsky, the founder of Puffco. As you're going to hear in our interview, Roger is truly and fully a hash head, and his commitment to spreading hashish culture is both longstanding and profound. We've never had someone on Great Moments in Weed History to talk about their company or promote their latest product drop, and we're not about to start now. So why interview the CEO of a multi-million dollar company? Because through the innovations that Puffco has introduced over the last 10 years, Roger and his cohorts have elevated the modern hash experience in ways that truly have changed the game and the culture. So stay tuned for some great moments in hashish history, including one at the very end that will warm your heart sufficiently to take a nice low temp dab off it. But first, a few programming notes. One, since I rushed this episode to press for 710, to press, that's a high-level hash pun right there. Anyway, we'll be off for the next two Weedness Days and back the following weed. Best way, as always, to make sure you never miss an episode of Great Moments in Weed History is to subscribe to the podcast right now wherever you get podcasts. Also, a huge thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon who make this show possible. Check out Great Moments in Weed History to see everything you're missing and maybe even throw in on this shit, man or woman 
or non-binary stoner, Patreon supporters get the video version of this podcast, special secret sessions with yours truly, and access to one of the coolest cannabis communities in all the digital world. You can support for as little as $1, put five on it, or for a little more, you'll get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, delivered right to your door. That's all at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Also, please invite two friends to come get high on history with us on this high holiday. Just text them your favorite episode of this program or one you know that they'll dig. Please, we need your help. We are still shadow banned and throttled and peanut buttered and all that. Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. So we rely on you, dear listeners, to help get the word out. Okay, now on to our 710 celebration. In this episode, we're going to follow Roger's cannabis journey from his first puff to the recent 10-year anniversary of Puff Co. Along the way, we'll also trace the modern history of hash and the current renaissance of hashish culture across the globe. To get ready, I'm going to dip into my personal dab collection just a little ahead of the high holiday, but wait, I'm hearing that you, yes, you, dear listener, you are caught off guard by the impending arrival of 710 and all it portends. You don't even have a a joint ready to go. Never mind a dab ready to endabulate. You might have to call up your local wook and have them come over with a tackle box full of oils and potions and concentrates of every variety. Doesn't that sound amazing? But it's going to take a little while. Wook's work on Wook time. How can you bridge the gap? How can you stop the earth from rotating? Well, you cannot. But as longtime listeners of this podcast know, there is a simple solution. If you want to dig into this 710 celebration, but you are not as lit as you would like to be, simply, and you can say it with me, hit pause and use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to be really on brand. (laughs) You can endabulate a dab, whatever it takes to get you where you want to be. And when you hit unpause and you're ready, I promise that we'll be ready for another great Great moment in weed history. happening such an honor to have you here on great moments in weed history and especially on our 710 episode thank you so much for having me i mean what an honor one of my favorite podcasts there's not much content out there that's really providing context for people that haven't been following the space for the last 10 20 30 years so i appreciate what you guys do and truly an honor for me to be here Oh, absolutely goes both ways. I'll say a quick congratulations on 10 years of Puffco innovation. We're going to get there. 
but we're going to start at your cannabis origin story. When did this plant in whatever form and whatever format first come into your life? This is a tough story for me to tell because I have to give a disclaimer every time I tell the story. I started very young. And I am, you know, typically against young people using cannabis. I, I want their brains to develop. I want them to be adults when they make the decision to consume something that can affect their bodies and their minds. All that being said, I started at 13 years old. You know, before 13 years old, I saw all drugs is bad. And somewhere along the way, I guess I made some friends or something. They were like, oh man, this isn't like that crazy of a thing. Um, and again, they were probably wrong being that we were all so young. And I remember trying it once on on like a field trip for school and I had to roll my own joint and it didn't smoke and it was just like I have no idea what I'm doing so I tell my buddy Eric in seventh grade I guess I'm like dude I tried this I don't know what I'm doing he's like oh come on by to my house we'll do it after school and so I go to his house and he loads up a pipe and I hit it and I remember very clearly feeling like the sensation in all of my toes and my fingers and the top of my head and it just started going towards the center of my body. And I remember it like rushing to the center and sliding off the couch and being like, holy shit, uh, you know, I'm a young person. So I've never had something that would give me an altered state before. And when it was all over and I was going home for the evening, I just remember thinking to myself, I had no idea a human could feel that way. And, and I had a somewhat traumatic childhood and, and especially teenage years, for me at least, in absence of some of the safety that I think a teenager should be experiencing, it gave me comfort. And that was my first experience with it. And I remember immediately thinking like, man, I want this thing to be a part of my life forever. I never want to not feel this way, which I understand is a very weird context to give because I'm 13. If I was 21, it would have been like, oh man, totally us too. But when you're 13, you're like, oh shit, man. I wish there were people showing you a better way to normalcy when you were a child. But that is my story. That's how I first started. 13 years old. I've been smoking cannabis 27 years now. Well, I, I appreciate the honesty. I want to amplify your message. We are about as pro-cannabis of a media outlet as you are going to find. But, you know, if you do look at the science of developing brains, younger people, that should not be discounted. That said, I do think it is important to be honest about our own experiences. Just, uh, Absolutely. you know, and, and, and I think that the trauma brain that you talk about, I had a similar path to cannabis and a similar realization around it. It was something that relieved that feeling. And now when we look at some of the studies with soldiers with PTSD, not comparing uh, my or your sure. adolescence trauma, but saying that the science has borne this out. I'm, I'm going to Take it from there to uh, wh when did hash uh, enter your life? Because I think that's a really important inflection point on your journey. I like to break it down. Traditional hash versus contemporary hash, right? Because hash has been around my whole life. As long as I've been smoking cannabis, I have heard that this thing called hash exists, even though it wasn't right in front of me. So traditional hash has been around since I was younger. Probably the first time I really tried it, I was 19 years old. It gave me a very sleepy high. I like went and got a corn cob pipe from the local bodega. I threw some in there, no tobacco or anything, and just like gently touched it until it started to catch fire. Consuming that compared to consuming weed was like weed was a bit more uplifting for me at the time. 
And this traditional hash just got me sleepy and dumb and tired. And while I felt like at 19 years old, I could effectively smoke a joint and go into work, I could not do the same thing with, with traditional hash. And so it took until 2010, 2011, around that time that I first saw contemporary hash. And I think a lot of New Yorkers' first experience with that is under the, the construct of wax this really super potent thing. It's not like traditional hash. We didn't even see it as hash. I remember when I first got it, it was this gross, green, goopy substance. It was obviously BHO. And there were no pens at the time. I remember not knowing what to do with it. And so I started putting it into joints and found that it was like an okay, but really messy experience. And then I very, very, very clearly remember, big shout out to my homie Dave that I'm still friends with today. He was like, hey dude, have you heard of these things called G-pens? You like put some wax in there and it just vaporizes it for you. And it's not like putting it into a joint or anything else. And we, we didn't have dabbing in New York, at least in my circle of friends, nobody knew what that was. And so that was my real first true experience was putting it into one of these vape pens and hitting it and that that moment really is the moment that spurred the creation of Puffco. Because as soon as I tried it, as a New Yorker, I'm like, holy shit, I've been to Central Booking before, I've been arrested for cannabis multiple times, and now I'm invisible in New York City. E-cigarettes aren't even popular yet, you know? They're seen as a pretty fringe thing. The box mods, the big, the big ones, they're barely taking off at this time. We're just kind of getting their momentum. And so now I can walk around New York City and consume concentrates or this wax with zero fear of being arrested. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what this looks like. And that was my real first experience with BHO. And I kind of want to close this loop because we started my, my first experience with cannabis and then my first experience with, you know, contemporary hash. And I really want to talk about my first experience with water hash. And that's with my buddy, Brian in Washington. This is 2000. 16. I had seen regular water hash before. I believe hash rosin was an already developing thing at the time where, where it's available. So I did have rosin, but I never had quality water hash. And I'm sitting on my buddy Brian's front porch. He torches up an old school mothership mini, so old school that it had a titanium nail for those that know. And I took my first hit of water hash and it brought me right back to that first experience when I was a younger person, where I felt the same feeling in my extremities and the same war warmth glowing throughout my body and this intensity that both cannabis and rosin and BHO hadn't given me before. That arc took me from being a can lifelong cannabis lover, cannabis curious to, okay, my mission is now hash. This is the best experience I've ever tried. And that's kind of been my arc of starting cannabis to fully falling in love and being on this hash agenda mission that I'm on. I think an important point, you know, now we're thankfully uh, in, a, in a time when you can smoke weed anywhere in New York City that you can yeah. smoke a cigarette. I always add to that. Don't be an asshole about it. But it yeah. is, but it is your legal right, and uh, and and but that stealth element of it with the pens, you like to think of it as uh, what it is—a cosmopolitan, global sure. city—and yet it was an incredibly repressive place to be a weed smoker for many, many, many decades. We had an episode of this show where we interviewed the early hip hop artist Busy B, and he talked about mm. how the blunt. Uh, was really uh, a means of concealing the weed. I've never heard that before. That's so cool. When I found out about the blunts in probably 
88. I saw a person with it and he tried to pass it to me. And I told him I don't smoke cigars. He said, no, it's weed. Camouflage. So, so the police don't fuck. With. I was like, is that right? Mm-hmm. It definitely worked, too. When I did it, police had no idea. They said, yo, I smelled the weed. He's walking around looking for the white paper, you know, the loose joints and shit. And the cigar burning right there. <laughs> <laughs> We got away with that shit for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you hit the nail on the head. New York is arguably the best consumption market in the United States right now. The fact that it's laws that for the first time aren't classist. You don't need to be a property holder to consume cannabis. That's pretty much the law. Any other state you go to in the country, you got to have your own place. Oh, you're renting and they don't allow you to? Too bad. You have no safe place to consume. So I love New York for that. But growing up, It was a completely different thing. And it wasn't just the police. It wasn't just, it was everything. We had a culture that ironically for this very progressive city hated cannabis. People would call the cops on you. People would look at you funny. If you smelled like weed, people would call you out. I remember me and my friends being dragged out of like clubs when we were younger, um, just because we smelled like cannabis. This really molded how I see the world, but being on the streets and just smoking a joint with my friends and then seeing cops roll up the street and we throw it out and they start harassing pretty much every young black person near us. The city was fucking crazy. People would call the cops on you and we had cops that we would call hop out boys that are running in unmarked cars that are looking for people smoking weed and jump out, throw you against the wall, take you in, you get arrested on a Friday, you're either going to Rikers or you're spending four days in jail. I mean, that was our history. And these wax pens, as we call them, when they first came out, were completely liberating. You know, blunt is one thing. That's a, I, I never heard that it was used to conceal cannabis, which makes a ton of sense for me, but it doesn't conceal the smell. As soon as you see somebody smoking, sure, it's a brown piece of paper, but burning flour is very pungent. You're going to smell it. That's not the case when you're smoking one of these vape pens. It smells very different. It smells more floral. It doesn't have that combustion element to it. So you're getting a much lower odor than you normally would. One of the biggest forms of feedback I get is from parents of, oh my God, I get to consume now. And so when they came on the scene, we were all liberated in the sense that we can consume. We're safer in our own city because the risk we took was anywhere from a little bit of jail time to serious jail time, from a little bit of inconvenience into your life and getting away with a charge to the rest of your life being ruined for being a felon, for having, my God, an ounce of flour and an ounce of hash on you or something like that. This new form of discretion felt like it was the first time as New Yorkers we were just able to be our authentic selves in public. We were able to go out and consume. We were able to sit outside at a restaurant and have a few pulls and enjoy ourselves. And that's the norm now in New York. But I don't think people realize that you literally had to risk your freedom to engage in these types of activities and the effect, the trauma that it had on all of us to always be looking over our shoulders, to always feel like a bad guy. I think I spent, as a New Yorker, most of my life feeling like I'm a bad person. I'm a criminal. I don't follow the rules. I'm grouped in with all the worst things people can be. And this was very effective propaganda on cannabis users. To me, it almost feels like a part of this whole gateway drug is we're going to put you in this box that everything you do is as bad as these other things. That's how I became an opiate addict when I was 16 years old. My dad caught me with weed. I had to quit. Somebody came through with a bottle of Oxycontin and said, look, it's this controlled and dangerous substance. This must be the same thing as weed. They call weed that. New York was a very, very different place. And concentrates were our first breath of freedom, our first chance to be ourselves with a little bit less fear. I think what's what's 
also happening is this kind of uh, kicks off the connoisseurship around hash in the United States, something that was previously more associated with traditional hash producing sure. countries, which I want to talk about in a bit. And also, you know, Europe as 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 a, a consumer of those uh, traditionally made products. But, you know, the tradition of making hashish is quite, quite old. And if you think mm. I'm talking about like the 1970s, you're only about a thousand years off, right? And I actually don't know how far back it goes. I thought it was even older than a thousand years old. But they have been mechanically separating trichomes from flour, arguably forever, you know, as like long as our relationship goes with this plant, you kind of realize that cannabis needs technology in some form. It could be biotech, like your hands, raise your hands over the nugs and over the leaves and leave with a resin on your hand that if you keep doing it and you rub your hands together, becomes charis. This is historically how, how cannabis was consumed. If you go back before the 1900s or especially before the 1800s, from what I understand, you don't have many people consuming flour. Our relationship with this plant is a relationship with resin more than it is with the actual plant itself. I don't think many people realize, and big shout out to Wooksauce Winery for putting me onto that, where we were walking around one day and he was like, you know, isn't it kind of funny that humans relationship with flour is so short and our relationship with hash is so long. But if you ask any average consumer, if that's the case, they would probably say the reverse of, oh, we smoke flour and hash is a relatively new thing. It's not. And I do feel like a part of our journey, while we're focusing on contemporary hash, this more evolved version of hashish, it does feel like we're also returning to our roots. We're getting closer to how we've engaged with this plant for as long as it's been a part of human history. Yeah, absolutely. And just for some practical reasons, it is a much more durable and portable uh, form of cannabis. So on these early trade routes, the same routes as the spice route, you know, if you were trading dried dates, you are definitely trading hashish. We have to recover this history. And also it is a history of parts of the world that uh, America often sidelines in all types of innovation, you know, trigonometry, whether you love it or hate it, you know, <laughs> comes from the, the Muslim world as does a lot of this hashish history. So I think it's fascinating to rediscover that. You've been on quite a lot of journeys lately. Where have you been experiencing hashish culture around the world uh, where you've either been tapping into these older traditions or, or finding some, some new shit going down? I've mainly been doing Latin America and Europe. That's Those are my, my two focuses today. Our team has been to South America. We'll be in Thailand by the end of the year. One thing that we found is that everywhere you go, there's hash. This resin has existed in almost all markets way before us. You know, that stuff exists in Japan. It exists in China. It exists in some of the places where it is most illegal to have these substances, and they're there. And what I found is that contemporary hash is growing extremely fast. You know, traditional hash, it's everywhere, it's been everywhere, it's arguably easier to get into a market than flour, right? It's smaller, it's more compact. We've all heard the stories of butt hash and how it used to be transported. <laughs> Not a lot of butt flour that exists or that I've heard of. Um, You'd have to, you'd have to really, really love that flour. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely not worth it, but I'm, I'm sure somebody has at one point. <laughs> there's, always, there's always somebody who's done everything before someone else. Now what I'm seeing is actually a completely new culture rising. This, this culture of contemporary hash isn't just an obsession with a resin that is more flavorful, that is coming from a live plant and not a cured plant. Like there's all these things that make contemporary hash what it is, but there's this culture around contemporary hash that starts off as being single source. Every country I go to, and my, my favorite place right now is actually Latin America because most people you talk to there are fully single source. Whether they have some of the best stuff you've ever tried or some stuff that looks like they're still figuring it out. And for those that don't know, single source means that you're pheno hunting the plants, so you're popping the seeds, you're selecting your strain, you're growing the flower, you're extracting resin from it. If you're turning it into rosin, then you're pressing it into rosin. The entire process is vertically integrated and we call that single source. And as I go to different countries, I meet people in these crazy pockets that typically are extremely afraid to even talk about what they do, that started doing it mainly because they didn't have access to it of shipment. I couldn't get flour, I couldn't get resin. So I started growing it myself. I saw rosin start being made, so I tried to figure out how to make water hash. And then once I figured out how to make water hash, I tried to make, there's, they're constantly iterating. If they don't know how to make water hash, they're making flour rosin. But all these people have taken it upon themselves to learn and grow and manufacture and deliver this resin into this world. If for no other reason, then they have something to consume themselves. And that's magical. I mean, there's very few single source companies in the United States. Most hash is being made either from just a company that's hiring a hash maker, hiring a grower, managing in different parts of the state, or they're just brokering deals and white labeling stuff. So it's not the same here. You don't have that same passion. You don't have somebody thinking through every stage that this resin is going to go through leading to your lungs. And you go to these other places and find these uh, obsessives that have truly dedicated their life to understanding how to manufacture resin and making the best of it possible. And so for me, traveling the world has opened me up to people that are so passionate about cannabis and about resin that it's blown my mind. And it's something new, you know? It could be one thing if it was the same old stoners that me and you have met a thousand times. It's not that, it's a whole new generation of people that are obsessed with elements of this relationship we have with this plant. And so that's probably the biggest thing that I've seen traveling the world, is that even where there is no community, there is contemporary hash culture. It's kind of been shocking. To touch on single source as a concept, you know, if, we, if you look at what are the connoisseur top grade coffees, whiskeys, wines, just as some easy sure. reference points, it would be the same. And of course, as you say, just because it's single source doesn't mean it's going to be the best in the world. Sure. Uh, but that is always where these sort of elite products come from and where innovations come from. When you have a lot of people trying to figure out how to do something, that's where um, these new techniques uh, and methods are going to come from. Speaking of, um, I, I'd, I'd say that would bring us to how you made the move from consumer of cannabis and advocate of cannabis and appreciator of cannabis to your your own unique and I, I would say uh, game changing uh, entry into the space through Puffco. How how did that how did that transition take hold of you? In the early 2010s, um, I was arrested a few times for for cannabis, and so like I mentioned before, these wax pens that came out were extremely impactful and freeing for me and the people around me. 
And so I started putting a lot of my friends on. I still have my my email invoice, not invoice, but just like receipt, I guess, from com in December of either 2011 or 2012. I forget which year it was. And I ordered a bunch of products from them. And like, maybe we could blur out the company name because I don't like, this is the part where it gets a little shit talky. But almost, I think like 80 to 90% of my purchase order was broken. And I was buying a lot of these products for the people I know. I wasn't even really making money off of it. I would try to catch a sale and hopefully end up with like a free one for myself or something. And they were all breaking. As I was doing this, a friend of mine was like, dude, you're really obsessed with this. Like I I see you playing with these things every day, trying to fix them, learning more about them, traveling everywhere you can go to see what other options exist. Why don't you try to do it yourself? And if you talk to some somewhat successful business people, they'll tell you that when you're starting a business, something that you kind of actually need is a healthy amount of ignorance. If you know how hard something is going to be, you're not gonna chase it. So I went from not really knowing what I was doing and just really being obsessed with something to saying, why don't I learn to see if I can offer this myself? And then started the very challenging and impossible journey of getting here. I had just the right amount of ignorance, just the right amount of ambition, just the right amount of interest in what I was doing that made it really palatable to learn some really hard lessons and power through them. It's been a decade and it's been quite a decade uh, for Puffco and quite a decade for hashish. And and in some ways, I think those stories parallel each other. A hundred percent of our audience, you know, maybe minus one person who thinks this is uh, going to come around to how to weed your garden uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> are, are, are all weed people. And, and I'm sure um, from all our emails and correspondence, many of them are hash head, uh, true and true. Uh, but for many people who, who really love cannabis or daily weed smokers, there is still an intimidation factor around hashish and, and, and going back to even your earliest experience. Sure, this looks Good smells good. I, I it sounds good, but how how do I consume this? At the same time, the pens were coming as this most stealthy way to consume. We were seeing the era of just the blowtorch, and uh, mm-hmm. much love for that era. Much love for the people. No shame or stigma, but how it looked to the outside world was not not ideal. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a new buddy of mine, um, Styles P. Uh, he's uh, part of the group The Locks, one of my favorite rappers growing up, Deep Lock all day. I'm like obsessed with him. And I, I developed a relationship with him in the past year or two. And when I talked to him, he was like, listen, dude, I was one of the first hash users in New York. I was torching it up in the early 2010s. And he was like, it reminded me of crackheads. Like, I remember thinking I'm torching myself up and this really reminds me of something that has negatively impacted like my life and the community around me. And so he stopped engaging with hash, mainly because the torch was so unpalatable and he got back into it through Puffco. And I believe now he's exclusively consuming hash where he doesn't even smoke flour anymore. But you know, it's exactly what you said. It's this double-edged sword of thank God for those pioneers that were torching because they gave us a level of experience that was so involved, but led to such an incredible outcome that it also sparked all this interest from Puffco. How can we make this something more approachable? And without them, I don't think we have the contemporary hash we have today. Without them finding ways to consume this, without the invention of low temp dabbing and carb caps and all these things that led to a really optimal 
experience with hash, we wouldn't have the type of hash we do today. There'd be no incentive to make it if you couldn't taste the terps in it, if you couldn't go for a low temp dab and have a better manageable high than you could if you smoked the joint or took a high temp dab. All these things that exist exist because of those pioneers and also all the stigma that exists around dabbing also exists because of those pioneers. And I don't think it's good or bad, I just think it's how this, how this new culture was born and this is our responsibility to move it forward. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell, I'll tell a quick story. I was uh, I had moved into a new place and uh, having a little housewarming party and a big group of the people I knew, uh, this is in Santa Cruz, California, a very weed-friendly place. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're from a local weed collective and, and I also uh, invited the next door neighbors over to meet for the first time and come to this party. And I knew that they were cool. They wouldn't be freaked out by weed. And they came over and they brought a pie and they said, here, we brought a pie. And then I just saw their faces go white as ghosts. Like, uh, what the fuck is going on? And I turned around and somebody was torching a, a dab Ugh. behind me. And, and they were like, oh, you're just freebasing at two in the afternoon at your housewarming party. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it never got super uh, great with those neighbors again. But I think um, just as to say... That, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not here to, uh, promote products or anything like that, but like the elegance and the sophistication of, of the peak, uh, in particular as sort of the first iteration of that was foundationally, that's, is, you know, the 10th anniversary and sort of why I, you know, we, we don't have a lot of CEOs or company founders or really anybody like that on this show. And that's not that there aren't people worthy of great moments in weed history, sure. but we're not here to, to be that kind of show, but totally. that was a great moment in weed history. And, and it, changed the culture and and what i think is so impressive about it is you didn't lose those people from the torch era you brought them in and that is a group of people who can be very set in their ways and very totally. the thing i'm doing right now is the absolute correct thing to do and don't ask me about what i was doing six months ago how did you do that yeah i love to i love to tell the story so i mean one yeah we've been able to i think bring in a good amount of torch dab users, certainly not everyone. You know, there are some people that are stuck on their ways and they love what they do. And also they feel no stigma nor no negative social interaction for how they use because whatever their circle of friends is, um, is comfortable with it. That wasn't my reality. So I already got, kind of told you guys, 2016 is when I took my first dab of water hash. And I was already dabbing consistently before then. And in fact, in 2015, I believe in 2014, I'm sure you remember this bean where they were calling flower pre-run, where it was like hash was such a monumentous vehicle of change in cannabis that like the connoisseurs would, would, would refer to flower as pre-run, which just meant hash that hadn't been turned into hash yet. That's how popular it was becoming. And I was one of those people. My flower usage had shrunk completely. I was mainly dabbing all day, every day. I would wait to get home and dab instead of smoking a joint. And now doing this in New York is pretty 
complicated. I have a whole network of cannabis lovers that I'm friends with and I want to consume with them. And when I try to consume with them, they are completely turned off by the torch. Anything from like just the way it looks to even trying it to trying it and then getting a hot dab because in 2014, 15, we didn't know better. And then being choked out, being too high and being like, dude, this feels insanely intense and not what I turned to cannabis for. By 2016, uh, you know, I'm already using carb caps. I'm aware of low temp dabbing is. I've had my first incredible hit of water hash. And I become obsessed with wanting to have my New York friends dab with me. It's my number one mission. And so in the beginning of 2016, we hire our first incredibly talented lead engineer. He's actually now our chief technology officer, Avi Bajpai. He asks me, what are, you know, what do you want me to work on today? What do you want me to work on for the future? And I'm like, well, for today, I need you to help me complete this product, the plus, the Puffco plus. But my big, big dream is I want to automate dabbing. I want to give damn near a similar experience to what a torch can give you but in a really simple device that doesn't have the stigma that most devices have. And so we started getting to work on this. We would talk about it, but we really put pen to paper at the end of 2017. Some of the things we were throwing around was it should look like a beer bottle because you should be able to be at a party and walk around and have nobody looking at you funny. And a beer bottle is something everybody has. And that beer bottle eventually shrunk into being a cone type of shape. And it should have everything you need out of the box. It should just heat something up in a certain amount of time. And you really have to get a similar flavor to what you get from a dab because if the flavor isn't there, it's just another vaporizer burning your oil, not helping you fall in love with hash. And we just kept iterating and iterating. We started buying different nails and trying to add power into those nails. And eventually we finally completed the project. It took about a year in ideation in 2016, a year in development in 2017, and then we dropped it early 2018. And it completely changed the course for our company. We were just a vape pen company before that. But now we showed people that we have an obsession that we are the thought leaders in, that we think about more than anyone else, that we're obsessed with, that we built a team around, that we don't go and try to make herbal vaporizers and other, we're trying to be great at one thing and we're not, we're not stopping until we're great at it. Just make something that is less stigmatized with little to no compromise in the experience compared to dabbing, uh, torch dabbing. We got very close with the OG Peak. We got even closer with the Peak Pro. And now I think with the invention of the 3D Chamber and the new Peak Pro, we're damn near there. Um, where it is at least as good as dabbing with a torch. Yeah, right on. And, and you know, comes out of the culture. And, you know, one, one of my experiences uh, back in the day and back when they were cool was working at High Times and working at the Cannabis Cups, you know, going back to when it was just in Amsterdam. And, man, you I, I already knew, of course, how, like, innovative and intelligent this culture is. But you would see every year people would take a booth and they just come up with something you know whether it was something that became ubiquitous like the grinder um sure or or you know <laughs> dangerous like tampa tony's blunt splitter which uh three of us in the office all cut our fingers on <laughs> oh my god i remember those in a little tube with like a razor in it i remember those yeah for swishers or something Jeez, yeah that's... tampa tony if you are out there 
Uh, Tampa no, Tony. I, I know. I, I promise not to sue you. Uh, I would love to know the story of that uh, very ill-fated product. But there was this whole world of weed innovation before there was any venture capital money and any institutional this sure. or bankers that or Yale MBAs. I mean, some of them might have been Yale MBAs, but they weren't getting this funding and this sort of sure. capitalistic frenzy, we were just innovating for ourselves despite all of this stigma. And I think that's one of the things, you know, as I think to myself, like, why don't we have more business leaders on this show? And because honestly, many of them just are not really adding anything, you know, not talking about anybody specifically, but just increasingly this investment capital is bringing with it people who don't really have skin in the game, who didn't start thinking about how to add to weed culture because they got arrested. They're thinking about bottom line shit. Most companies in the space are chasing capital. That's it. I mean, like that's, that's the environment that we're in. You know, certainly I created Puffco to be able to have independence and be able to do what I love and make money from it. So like, this isn't a charity project for me. However, Puffco is fully founder owned. We have no investors. Puffcon costs us so much money. There is no way any board of directors or shareholders would be like, yeah, keep doing that. They'd be like, we need our money and you're using all of it to spend on the community and things that you want to do. But I just don't think that there's a lot of people in the space because now this is a business. And, you know, 10 years ago, it was very easy for me to enter this business. There weren't a lot of players. It was still a very fringe thing. It was considered a massive risk, especially as a New Yorker. Like you were frowned down upon for even being in the tech side of cannabis. But today, in order to be a part of this business, you have to have incredible capital. You have to have a lot of resources. It's really, really hard to enter. And what that means is that most of the people making the decisions that drive the space forward are strictly here to serve their own interests and to serve capital. And it's made it so you can't have conversations with this because we're not at the same vibration as somebody that's just trying to make money. I feel like my CFO is laughing in the background of like, yeah, maybe you could be a little bit more like them in the future. Uh, she's not thinking that at all. She's she's wonderful and wants, wants us to keep doing what we're doing. But that is the space that we're in. And, you know, I really think it's important for people in the space to know that they have to hold these these companies accountable. They really have to support the people that are here for the community, for the plant, to drive all of us forward over the people that are here to just make a little bit of money. Most CEOs and business leaders in the space have not been arrested for cannabis. Um, and to me, it feels a lot like a president that's never been to war flinging us into war. You have to understand the sacrifices we've all made to be here to be able to properly lead this space. And that's just not what it is today. One of my pet peeves when people say is they call Puffco corporate cannabis. And for me, again, founder-owned company. I, I, I built this not myself with all the people that helped me along the way, but without investors, without people that are strictly here to serve the bottom line. And when people call us corporate cannabis, I'm like, man, you're just putting us with all the same people that never gave a drop of blood or sweat or tears to be in this space. You're putting us in the same group as them. And I, I try to give clarity on it, but sometimes I'll just seem a little bit triggered. But you're right, as it relates to business leaders, the majority leading us are not one of us. 
I don't know how to change that. That's a community thing. What the community allows to happen will happen. If we allow bad leaders to move us forward, then that's the fate we'll receive. And it's really more of a community thing. But I hope that when people talk to me, when they engage with Puffco, they feel that they're being represented by people that came from the community, not people trying to capitalize off of it. Bottom line, we can all vote with our with our dollars. And yes, <laughs> this is a, a made up statistic based on a lot of anecdotal evidence. You know, 85% of uh, cannabis is consumed by 10% of the people who consume cannabis. So if you're listening mm. to this podcast, you have a very outsized voice in this conversation simply by uh, where and when and how you acquire cannabis and uh, cannabis. I've never thought about that. Yeah, that's actually... You're, you're totally right. Like a lot of the data I've read over the years shows that it's a very small group of cannabis users buying most of the cannabis. And yeah, you're right. They should use that power. I mean, what a the fact that 20% of people control 80% of the market means that every dollar that you spend is extremely powerful. It's like a vote in Ohio or something, right? <laughs> Where it's like, it's all in your hands. It's not, everyone else is just there to exist, but you can change the space. And we're probably not helping the community a ton because most of the bad actors are doing things in the shadows and there's nobody necessarily bringing it to light. And it's tough, I think, for people like me or you to do it. I don't want to focus on negativity in the space. I don't want to be one of those people on a soapbox screaming, we need to destroy these companies. And you're not here to talk about that as well. You're here to talk about the context of what's gotten us here and the love for the plant and the culture and the community. But maybe we all should share some responsibility in at least highlighting what people should keep their dollars from. It's a very touchy thing, especially for people that just want to operate at a high vibration. But man, good, 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 good statement. I've never really thought about that. It's a powerful statement. And it also explains, you know, I've been laughing for a solid uh decade now at people whose business plan was, well, we're going to get, and, and uh, all the love to soccer moms who've never smoked weed before, but oh my God, if your business plan of how you're going to return people's investment a hundred times is we're going to focus on soccer moms who've never smoked weed before, uh, I'd say good luck to you, but you're already out of business. I can't wait, by the way, for this to be a cliche, right? Like, I know that there a certain amount of time will come where we start making fun of the fact that in the mid 2000s, every banker, every investor was like, what are you doing about soccer moms? I, I never sought investment, but I would always be okay or friendly talking to money people just in case whatever one day I may need it. And every single one historically, what's your plan for soccer moms? They're going to be the biggest demo in the space. And no matter what you tell them, they wouldn't listen. And finally, that conversation is over. Not that soccer moms don't smoke weed, but this is what happens when you have outsiders determining where value is within a space that they're not a part of. Well, that's, that's a great uh, place to bring, I, I would usually say, back to the grassroots, but I'm going to say let's bring it to the hash roots. Sure. We're putting this episode out a little bit in advance of 710, the hashish holiday. And, you know, as we touched on, a lot of people listening to this show and their friends consuming cannabis uh, on the reg, as they say, but, you know, maybe a bit intimidated by all the different forms of hashish. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of somebody fortunate enough to have some options. You know, uh, all too often the option is still take it or leave it. And I, I would sure. recommend take it. Uh, 
sure. let's say you have access to a modern dispensary or you know a wook with a uh, <laughs> a wook with a tackle box. Yeah, the wook is going to have a lot more options for you and be way more informed. <laughs> I'd go with the wook if you have one in your life. Go with your local wook for sure. Okay, but so beyond that, looking at the actual products themselves. Um, how would you advise somebody, you know, newer to this but already uh, on Team Weed to, to get into it on 710? I'm going to point to the two reasons that I fell in love with hash, right? Not concentrates is this big construct of uh, uh, more discretion and, and all the things that it offers, but hash specifically. Hash gives me these two things. It gives me unparalleled flavor. I cannot get this level of flavor from cannabis flower. It's just not there. In fact, some strains that I try in flower form and then try the extracted version of that same flower, it blows my mind. It's like it's a different plant. Where the fuck did you get these terps from? And if you're somebody who enjoys cannabis, not for its mechanical relationship it has with getting you high, but with the overall experience, with the nuance of it, how it smells, how it tastes, you are going to not just fall in love with hash, but you're going to fall in, in love with cannabis more through hash. It will give you a better understanding of the complexity of flavor, the diversity of flavor. The second is a more controllable high. In this conversation, you've heard me talk about getting way too high, and you've heard me talk about a very manageable high. When I switched in uh, the mid-2000s uh, mid from flour to hash, and now I'm, I'm, you know, flour is more incorporated in my life. It's like 10 or 20% of my usage. Um, when I made that switch, I made that switch because if I smoked a joint, I would consume all the cannabinoids in that joint, which seems like a positive, right? Everything in here is going into my body. While with dabs, or vaporizing hash, I'm not consuming everything. I'm leaving, I'm leaving a little bit behind in the bowl that we Q-tip out. Now, I don't have the science behind this, so like, please take this as my subjective experience, but I believe what the joint is giving you more of, that hash is giving you less of, is CBN. It is a cannabinoid that is a byproduct of THC. As far as I know, it gets you uh, tired. It gives you that dulling effect, that spacey effect that you get when you consume cannabis. Now, when I started dabbing, I found that I was charged up. Instead of smoking a joint and disassociating from the world, I actually was more honed in. I wanted to do more work. I wanted to read more articles. I wanted to explore Instagram and ask questions of the community that they can give me context for. It shifted my relationship from cannabis being like alcohol to cannabis being like coffee. I wasn't tuning out anymore. I was tuning in. And so if you're somebody that loves cannabis and you love the flavor of cannabis and you're always curious by it, you're going to love hash. And if you're somebody who wants more control over how they consume, where you might want to get completely blasted off, a dab will get you there, no doubt. You can get extremely high in record time, but you can also get moderately high and have it engage with your life, not slow you down, not have you move away from your priorities, but lean into them with curiosity. That is what hash has given me and specifically vaporizing hash over smoking it. This 710, if you have somebody with a Puffco in your life is a perfect opportunity to ask them, hey, if I go and I buy a jar of hash today, can you show me what good hash is and maybe what's interesting about it? It's the perfect day to do that. I think a relationship with hash is overall bettering for most people in their relationship with cannabis. Um, but it's very subjective. It's not the case for all people. So this 710 
reach out to that weird friend who's always been super into something and has all the gadgets and all the knowledge. And if you ask them anything about cannabis, you got to expect 30 minutes that they're going to talk your ear off. Sometimes that can be a little bit of an imposition or an inconvenience, but not when you're curious. And so I would encourage all of you to approach 710 with curiosity and engage those chatty friends and give them something to do that day because they're going to show up with their tackle box and all their things and really let you know why this has become this obsessive thing in their lives. Find yourself uh, a wook. That's a non-gendered term. Uh, <laughs> oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. somebody who, um, you know, is a, is a holder of some uh, still slightly esoteric knowledge, you know, and um, that's really been the other thing. This is a very, very peer-to-peer culture, and I think you hit on that. We, we're, we're fortunate now, somewhat, uh, that we have good sources of information. They're still not the biggest sources of information, are, are not the most trustworthy ones when it comes to cannabis but that information is out there but what could be more fun and more engaging and and like you say if you're if you're reaching out to that person about the thing that they are passionate about get ready for an earful get ready for a lungful and uh what better way to celebrate 710 before we uh let you go roger i do like to ask everybody to share you know we say great moments in weed history happen to everyone uh you know they don't always rise to the level of uh historical event for the world but for each of us we we have those moments and i'd love it if you if you could share one with us yeah you know i I knew this question was coming and i thought long and hard about it there's so many incredible moments for me there's meeting two chains on the most expensive is what up what up here with my man roger from puffco i have the first ever smart rig smart Smart rig. That's right. It's an intelligent bomb. Giving him a dab, and I'm not sure if that was his first dab or not, but he seemed to love it. Meeting Styles P. You know, Hash has connected me with people that I'm genuinely a fan of and get starstruck by. There's so many of those moments, but the more I thought about it, the more there was one glaring moment. You know, my, I'm a first generation American. Uh, my, my parents, uh, emigrated from the, from Ukraine in the seventies. I mean, we've always said Russia because it's the USSR, but now we say Ukraine. And she has a really negative outlook on cannabis. You know, her whole life, it's been what Ukrainians, Russians call narcotica, which is pretty much everything under the sun, heroin, coke, wheat. It's all the same thing. Um, and so she's hated it throughout her life. She's hated the smell. I remember smoking in a room that she would walk into and she would start gagging and hating it. And then, you know, since Puffco has come along every year, she hates it a little bit less. She's a little bit more open. And finally, in this past year, I went over her house and I'd already for a couple years when I smoked been blowing it in her face a little bit, you know, with her consent. She's like, it's her only way of consuming that she's like, I don't want it, but I'm not gonna tell you to not smoke around me. And finally, I got her to try it. And I have a video of it, but I'll never post it. But it was such a beautiful moment where she she used the proxy. She used some like really floral hash from Trichedelics that a lot of newbies seem to love. I always pull out that hash for people that are unfamiliar with concentrates. And she smoked it, took like two pulls maybe, and sat there. And I kid you not, less than a minute later, she had a complete laugh attack. And I don't think I've ever seen my mom laugh this hard. Like truly, I don't think I've ever seen her that lost in laughter and smiling and something that she had always hated. 
was something that she was now a little more comfortable with. And I know a joint wouldn't have gotten her there. If I gave her a joint, she'd have been like, ooh, foo, smells, get this away from me. But the proxy somehow, you know, whether it's because her son made it or the shape was okay for her, it got her to try it. And that was a really big milestone moment in my life where I feel like I can convince anybody to fall in love with hash, given enough time and given the right environment. But I never knew that I could do that for my mom. And that was her, one of her first experiences with weed. She tried it when she was in her 20s, I think got a panic attack, hated it, never did it again. So the greatest moment in my weed history was the moment that I saw my mom enjoy cannabis for the first time in my life. Um, that was the greatest by far. Oh, and what a fantastic one. And uh, speaks to our... Uh culture's responsibility we we are a self-chosen culture you're not born into this sure and you have an understanding that something that the world says is very bad is actually very very good in including of course the medicinal aspects but all aspects of it and and you know and to be on that long of a journey with someone so close to you yeah. and and to have it come to that full circle i think gives us all uh, a warm feeling in the present and a good feeling for what the future of weed can be so great moment in weed history stamped for sure Rogers, thank you such a pleasure to spend some time with you i look forward to the next time we can uh, get lit together irl until then i'm gonna say congratulations on 10 years of puffco and happy 710 to you thank you so much and congratulations on all your success with this show i think it's probably the most important programming in cannabis because you guys are giving so much great context um, if you're tuning into this episode just for me, which I don't think there'll be many people of, but if you are, please, please listen to the body of work that they've created here. There's so much interesting stuff from the story of 420 to the origins of Santa to just like the coolest, weirdest shit that everybody should know. And I just want to encourage everyone listening to please consume more of this content so we can all move forward and be more informed together. Um, and if you liked hearing from me, my Instagram is Jolly Roger. I run a stream where you can ask me questions. I'm pretty engaged with the audience. Come check us out, puffco.com, all that stuff. Absolutely. Thank you for those kind words. And we will see you all next Weed on Weedness Day for an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Stay lit till then, and happy 710, everybody. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.